This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios here in L.A. And I'm Mike Simpson. Here to talk, of course, about the coronavirus pandemic. We've had a lot of important medical figures on the podcast. Dr. Fauci has been on a couple times now. We talk with the director of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield. He's optimistic, but also warns you be cautious over Labor Day weekend. Now, when you hear about steroids, well, usually when you hear about steroids, you're talking about like weightlifters and things like it's that. It's not, right? not good, right? Yeah, no, it's usually bad and involves, you know, athletes, like I said, bending the rules. But not all steroids are harmful. In fact, they can even help fight this virus. Can a vaccine, once we get one, be distributed widely across the country in just the next, I don't know, couple months? States are being told to get ready, but is that realistic? Hey, remember um, the big Sturgis motorcycle rally? Lots and lots and lots of people. Yeah, right? and bikers in particular, yeah, rolling into town, no masks, no social distancing. Hard to maintain, you know, six feet apart on motorcycles when you're thousands in numbers. <laughs> well, it looks like a coronavirus death, unfortunately, has been linked to it. So what does that mean for Labor Day weekend when people get together to party? We know by now the airline industry has been hit hard since all this got going. United's taking a drastic step coming up, and it impacts thousands of workers. We'll also look into when the airline industry will recover and how it will change from this point forward. But first, let's hear from CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield. He talks to WWJ's Tom Jordan about the good, the bad, the ugly with the coronavirus in the U.S. Right now, we are progress across the country. The numbers are coming down. We had a peak of almost 67,000 cases uh, in a day. Now our average has dropped persistently down each each day, each week. We're down now probably on an average in the high 30s. Um, same with our deaths that peaked at 2,500. They're now under 1,000 coming down. We want to maintain that trajectory of control. Uh, so this weekend's really important that people really do remain vigilant about wearing masks, social distancing, washing their hands, being smart about their family gatherings, keeping them small, making sure that they distance and wear masks during those events. Um, this is uh, extremely important. The second area that I encourage people to discuss over the Labor Day weekend is how important it is this season for each of them to get the flu vaccine. Um, obviously, with flu coming and and COVID coming, uh, if we could get uh, everyone vaccinated and maintain our mitigation steps, that really does look like we're having the lowest summer flu activity that we've ever had. Uh, but we really got to keep it up. It's something we're going to need to do vigilantly until we really get a vaccine deployed. So. This is an important weekend. We're putting out some special announcements at CDC to try to just reinforce and encourage people to say, you know, this is the weekend to get it right, to follow this mitigation guidance, to go all in uh, so that we can really hit uh, September, October, the COVID uh, uh, going down, 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 down as we begin to also have to confront flu. You know, we're concerned about these spikes, and, and in Michigan at least, and maybe other states as well, some of the largest spikes of COVID-19 are in nursing homes. And here we've had 32% of the deaths are from these long-term facilities. Our governor, Gretchen Whitmer, um, she's come under fire for her allowance of these COVID patients being treated inside long-term care facilities. How do you think this 
maybe could have been handled better? Or maybe what can we do from here on out? Yeah, I like the second part better. I, you know, I, I, I know there's going to be plenty of time for postmortems, uh, you know, uh, about everything that we could have learned to do better because we're learning on the run here. Clearly, nursing homes are uh, a, a key area of high vulnerability. It turns out that only 0.1% of the American population lives in a nursing home. But nursing homes account for more than 50%, or 40% of the deaths, between 40 and 50% of all deaths in this country. So clearly, this is where we're having paying the big price in terms of loss of life. Uh, you know, this week, uh, we've, um, CMS has come out with additional uh, regulations that uh, nursing home employees get screened based on the prevalence of infection in the area. So most nursing homes will be screened twice a week or once a week, and some in the lower prevalence area once a month. Uh, the key for nursing homes is has been the employees, have, which have unfortunately brought the virus in to the nursing home. Uh, this week also and last week and hopefully by the middle of September, will CDC and the U.S. government will provided uh, portable point of care testing machines to every nursing home that has a CLIA waiver. That's uh, that's fourteen thousand four hundred of the more than fifteen thousand nursing homes will have their own ability to do their screening of their employees, and I hope uh, will then offer opportunity to uh, target screening visitors. I think a lot of people fail to understand the the huge cost uh, to the health of nursing home uh, citizen residents that's really been paid by not having the ability to interact uh, with their loved ones. Nursing homes continue to be something we all have to be vigilant about. Uh, And unfortunately, you're right, across the country, we've seen now more uh, cases back again in nursing homes. I think it's just important for people to realize, like schools, the cases in nursing homes aren't starting in the nursing homes. They're actually being brought in from the community. Uh, and in this case, they're brought in usually by uh, the healthcare workers. And this is one of the reasons now CMS is going to require by regulation that these healthcare workers actually get tested uh, on a regular basis uh, to see if uh, we can pick up asymptomatic infection and prevent these nursing home infections. Dr. Robert Redfield with the CDC, the director of the CDC. Steroids get a lot of bad press. They're associated with cheating in sports and long-term health problems, but steroids can actually be helpful. Researchers finding some cheap, widely accessible steroids can reduce deaths among severely ill coronavirus patients. Dr. William Hasseltine, president of Access Health International. So, doctor, looks like we have some numbers to back up what some hospitals have already been finding out. It's very good news. Um, we've known that uh, steroids can help, but you really have to be careful. Uh, I don't want people to think that if they are ill, they should take steroids themselves. If you take steroids early in the disease, it can make things worse. It's only for people who are usually in intensive care that the doctors then administer the steroids. The the pattern of the disease has four distinct phases, and the steroids work only in the last one. The first one is you feel like you've got a cold or a fever. Don't take steroids then. The second, you're ill enough to go to the hospital. Doctors won't be giving you steroids either for that or for the blood clotting that comes next. 
It's only in the relatively late stages where you have a inflammatory reaction all over your body that the steroids work. And then they really do a good job. They can uh, reduce uh, the death of patients by about 30%. So does that mean that we should start seeing, and by the way, maybe is that one of the reasons we are seeing what appears to be a reduction in fatalities? Uh, that is one of the reasons. It's actually, we've learned a lot about how to manage patients. If you went into the ICU at the beginning of this epidemic, your chances of coming out alive were about 10%. We've learned, first of all, to prone people. That means put them on the stomach so they can breathe better. Uh, we've learned how to give them not as many fluids, less fluids, uh, so that helps. We've learned not to put such high pressure for the intubation, so that saves some lives. We've then learned how to manage the clotting through uh, very carefully controlled use of um, uh, anticoagulants, things like heparin. Uh, we've also learned how to take people out of the intensive intubated state more quickly and give them other kinds of supportive care. Collectively, that means that people who used to die at a rate of about 90%, now it's about 20 to 30% in the best hospitals. So we're saving a lot of people. That doesn't mean they're out of the woods. If you've been in an intensive care unit for COVID, you're very likely to be pretty seriously ill and home-ridden for a couple of months and feel the effects for at least six months, if not much longer. No, it's not an easy road. Um, what not do the road, steroids... Oh, go ahead, but I was just going to ask, what do the steroids do in there? Because they're not going after the virus itself. No, uh, the virus is pretty much long gone. It's only in the first phase, the first 10 days or so, that you have virus. It peaks at about three days post-infection. You start to feel sick, and it immediately comes, the concentration goes down. After about 10 days, there's very little virus. We're tackling about 20 days out plus. And at that point, you have all the long-term effects of this, and you have really a hyper- uh, uh, inflammatory reaction, and we know that steroids are really good for that. And uh, so it's calming the body's natural inflammation in reaction to this uh, viral infection. Dr. William Hazeltine, President, Access Health International. Doctor, thanks so much. Public health departments across the country are being told to get ready quickly to mass distribute a coronavirus vaccine by, ready for this, November 1st. Huh, that seems like a familiar date. Uh, or yeah. maybe that there's some kind of, you know, a big important event. thing happening soon. Yeah, you know what that is. It's like two days before the presidential election. All right, so uh, politics are not aside. Is it even realistic to do this? Dr. Eric Toner, senior scientist at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. So how are the states and public health departments going to pull this off? Can they right now? Well, that, that um, we'll have to see how we do with vaccinations. Um you know, I, I don't think that the November 1 timeline is at all realistic, and, and I don't know anybody in the science community who thinks it is. But, you know, we likely will have a vaccine sometime in the winter, maybe several vaccines, which complicates the issues even more. Um, but this would be a distribution uh, challenge unlike anything we've ever experienced. What are the, some of the things that, that we need? And we talked, you know, trunks, distribution centers, refrigeration. Maybe people don't always think about that last one. But this is not as easy as just getting a vial of this stuff and, and sending it out to a, a doctor who needs it. I mean, all of these doses, especially if you need to, and then keeping them cold. Take us through some of the steps of what this actually looks like in practice. Well, 
particularly if it's one of the several vaccines that requires deep uh, cold storage. You know, one of the leading vaccines requires to uh, be maintained at minus 80 degrees. So that you can't, a normal freezer won't do that. You need special freezers. You need to maintain it on dry ice. Um, so it can't be delivered through a doctor's office or through a pharmacy. Uh, we would have to set up special centers with special freezers in order to do this. And these have not been set up. We don't have a way to do this. We don't have a way to ship it yet, um, much less figure out how to distribute it. So there are other vaccines that are in development that don't require such, um, you know, deep cold. Um, but all of these are going to be complicated. And it's likely there'll be more than one vaccine. And so people will need to keep track of which vaccine people get. It's, it's going to be challenging. Well, and, and let's say there are three or four different companies and all of those, uh, many of which I think two or three are now in phase three trials. Suppose they all get the go ahead. Uh, how do you decide or how does your doctor decide? How, how do you know which one you're going to get? And does it matter? It, it probably does matter. Um, they will all be different in terms of their both their effectiveness profile and their safety profile. Some may be more effective than you know, one age group versus another, for example, or, you know, they'll all, have, they'll all be different. And so there will have to be guidelines uh, about uh, how they're used and what specific groups are the best candidates for them. Um, and, and those guidelines can't be written until the trials are done. So it, it's hard to imagine how this can be done so quickly. Maybe, you know, New York or L.A. could pull it off, but what if I'm in a rural area or a state that has just people all spread out and maybe not a lot of money to do all of this. That complicates things. Oh, absolutely. If you think about large parts of, of the country um, where you know, there's relatively little uh, access to health care, um, yeah, people living in those communities are not likely to get the vaccine early, even if they're in a priority group. Um, it's going to be very challenging to reach some of those people. So everybody, everybody asks the same question. When can we stop wearing masks and social distancing? And the answer always comes back when we have effective vaccines. So my question to you is, realistically, what are we really talking about, provided that these vaccines that are out there pass enough of the, the test to get even emergency approval from the FDA? What's the realistic time frame before enough people can get these vaccines to stop wearing masks and social distancing? Well, it's not a question of when the vaccine becomes available. It's a question of when people uh, take it. The majority of the population has taken right. the vaccine, and it, it also depends on how effective the vaccine is. So, you know, it's a combination of those factors. Um, you know, my timeline is the earliest would be a year from now, more likely it'll be longer than that. Dr. Eric Toner, internist, emergency medicine physician, senior scientist, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. The first death linked to the big Sturgis motorcycle rally has been reported. If you recall, a bunch of bikers thundered in 
There was no real social distancing and hardly any mask wearing. So should this be taken as a warning, avoid crowds, parties for Labor Day? Chris Erisman, director of the Infectious Disease Epidemiology Prevention and Control Division at the Minnesota Department of Public Health. So, Chris, your state has linked dozens of cases to the event, but uh, those are, you know, confirmed tests, positive cases. There's probably a lot more than that, right? Yes, I, I'm afraid you're probably right about that. We have 50 cases that we know of who have expressed that they um, were exposed at Sturgis, but we know that there are many people who chose not to get tested, and there may also be people who got tested but chose not to tell us about all their exposures. And I got to ask you, the people who were there and have been exposed, and maybe are, some of them are already ill, do they actually express surprise that they got it? I mean, do they say things like, I don't know how I got it? <laughs> well, um, not no, not in so many words. I think, I think that people that attended the rally um, probably knew that there was a chance that they could be infected. I'm pretty sure that the individual who passed away um, did not think that the decision to attend the rally would have that ultimate consequence for them. Um, but yes, I, I think that perhaps people aren't aren't as surprised, and I think, as you said, they they aren't the people that maybe were as concerned about the outcome of a COVID infection um, as others in society. This is kind of like your epidemiology worst case thing to do, right? When if you get out a map of the U.S. and think of how many people came from somewhere, and then you get out your little uh, pins and draw the red strings all the way across, and you can just watch it go, and then you know that those people eventually get around somebody else, and this is how things continue to spread. Oh, absolutely. I mean, certainly, um, if you wanted to plan a scenario that uh, would have bad consequences for disease transmission, this is, this is certainly it, because um, in a situation where you have 4,000 400,000 people, excuse me, congregating together, it's really hard to socially distance, um, even in a state with like South Dakota that has so much space. So we know that the idea of socially distancing, wearing masks, all the things that are really important to prevent transmission, it's really hard to do that in that kind of an environment. So yeah, it is kind of a worst case scenario. I'm curious about another thing. Um, it's one thing, for those who decided they wanted to take part in this event and they went and presumably they knew what the risks were and some of them it worked out okay and some of them sadly it, it didn't. It would be another thing if some people who lived in that small town because of this large grouping of people ended up getting infected but didn't have the choice of, of going to an event. Is there any evidence that people in the town may have been infected because of this large group of people? You know, that that actually um, would be South Dakota's Department of Health that would have to um, address that because I've heard that there have been some cases in South Dakota, but obviously I know Minnesota better. I think one thing that I can tell you that's happening in Minnesota is that we're seeing secondary transmission from these cases. So again, a situation, as you said, where an individual might say, yep, I'm willing to take the risk. This is really important to me, and I'm going to go. They come back, they're infected, and now they're infecting other people who didn't choose that same risk. And we are aware of a situation where somebody who had been to Sturgis, uh, came back, infected, went to a wedding, uh, exposed people at the wedding, so now we've got additional cases 
uh, from that particular case. So it is, it's like, it's like dropping a pebble in a lake, which we know well here in Minnesota, and you just see the ripple effect and it just keeps going out. So um, absolutely, it's having impact on people who didn't make the choice to go. Chris Erisman with the Minnesota Departments of Health. The airline industry struggling to get back to normal because of that. United Airlines says it will furlough over 16,000 employees when payroll restrictions attached to the federal bailout program expire on October 1st. WBBM's Jim Gudis talked to John Swiderman, director of the Chattuck Institute at DePaul University, about what can be expected as we move forward. Yeah, it has been a tough week. First American now today united with the 16,000 plus layoffs. And we, we suspected this was coming because the federal bailout package, uh, you know, is in slow motion right now and the airlines just can't wait any longer. I think we've felt some good news just in the last week about the build up of bookings as people get a little more confident. But we're way below where we thought we'd be in August. So, uh, United's uh, making a big move here. So it's just a matter of people still a little bit too uh, timid about flying, and, and that's just making it hard for the airlines to rebound. A lot of things are happening. You know, schools aren't opening as planned. I think there's still a general sense that travel should be limited to uh, somewhat essential uh, work. I think that's going to change probably in October, November, if we don't have a, a big second wave. As the economy recovers and those deferred vacations start to get on people's minds, uh, but right now we're looking at about 25% of the norm for air travel, and that's, uh, that's pretty depressed. Air travel will recover eventually, but when will it return to pre-pandemic levels is anyone's guess. So when they do come back, how different are things going to look? KYW's Matt Leon talks to Benjamin Altschuler, professor of travel and tourism, Temple University, trying to get some answers. Prior to COVID, the airline industry was probably at its healthiest that it's been in years. I was reading uh, some stuff from Airline of Amer- uh, Airlines for, uh, of America, and that the past three, four, five years of airline travel could actually be considered really this golden era of travel. And if you think about some of the numbers um, out there from the past year, uh, for example, as far as um, passenger flights go, TSA was monitoring about 44,000 flights per day. That equals about 16 million flights uh, per year. On average, TSA was screening uh, about 2.5 million people uh, per day on average. So, I mean, that's a huge number. And then if we look right before COVID, you know, January 2020, February 2020, the expectation was that the industry um, was going to grow, you know, the number of passengers, the, the economics was going to grow between 5 to 6%, you know, each month. And then, obviously, COVID hit, and we see this, this huge drop, which we can talk about, but... Um, The industry went from being at its healthiest to really in a bit of peril right now. So, um, you know, things have changed considerably over the past six or seven months. Yeah, to go with what they're facing now, how challenging is this situation? And you talked to some numbers there. How much have they fallen off the table here over the last few months? Well, I think it's, you know, obviously there's some big, uh, since this, since COVID hit, there's been, there was a, a severe drop off and things are looking a little bit better, but let's talk in April, you know, this is a month after we kind of had that full shutdown in March. In April, um, if I recall, I was looking at middle of April, TSA said that they were um, uh, checking in about 44,000 people per day on average. So you're talking about two and a half million last year to a drop of 44,000 in the middle of April. I mean, that's, I don't know, 70, 80% drop off. I mean, that's pretty significant. Now, I think there are the, the forecasts of what we're seeing currently, 1.8 million people less on average 
uh, last August compared to this August. So obviously the number of people going through TSA is down. If we were talking 44,000 flights on average per day last year in August, it's now down to about 5,600 flights per day. So again, we're seeing huge drop-offs. Um, the other big thing to think about with airlines is that airlines need to be about 70% full to break even as far as passengers go. We've all seen that many of the airlines are taking very uh, are taking safety precautions to kind of you know create as much social distancing as possible on planes. So when you when you only have two people, you know, in a sense, when you keep that middle seat open. It's, it's almost impossible to hit that 70% threshold to break even. So even if you can increase the number of flights, I mean, I don't think we're going to get to 44,000 anytime soon, but even if you can increase the number of flights, you still can't get even close to capacity. I, I, I recall reading somewhere that at the depths of this thing, um, COVID, you know, March and April, you know, flights were having 15 people a day. Now you're up to maybe 40 or 50 people a day, but most of these planes can carry 200 people a day. So we're far off from being, or the airline industry is very far off from being healthy, but we're seeing slight improvements. But I mean, really, when you think about where we were last year with the airline industry compared to today, it's, um, it's, it's not good. This pandemic and the entire year 2020, just bad. Just, I hate this year. Just awful for, for everyone. But, Terrible. yeah, but here's the thing, you know, it's been a blessing of sorts for our four-legged friends. It might just be the best year ever if you happen to be a dog. More of them are finding homes, fewer are being put in shelters. With so many people working and staying home, they're adopting dogs for companionship, not to mention the dog economy is booming. Dog diapers. I never heard of that. I always miss the opportunity. You know, it's always like things I should have gotten in on on the yeah. ground floor like i wasn't thinking doggy diapers right but dog <laughs> but here dog. we are well yeah and it turns out <laughs> sales have increased 24 million dollars from about february to mid-august that's up more than 200 percent compared to this time last year one doggy diaper company called Peakeeper <laughs> says it's been busier than ever you know i guess silver lining is right you know if i'm a dog person so i'm happy that the dogs are happy so, so dogs are rooting for the virus never to end. I just want us to stay home with them forever. Well, because if the virus ends, they're back in the dog. House. And all we could, uh, and all we can do is go on walks. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's great, great for them. Uh, Radio.com, Apple, Google, Stitcher, find us there. Thanks. Thank you.